You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, amen, and thank you for being here this morning at Grace Community Church, whether you're present or you're watching online. It's so good to, for the family of God to be together. As Jim was um, talking about our need to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, um, I, I was thinking about a verse that I read this morning. Uh, on Sunday mornings, I'm always reading and revising for the last time the message. And if I get up early enough, then I get to do some other reading too. And I was reading in the Psalms. It's been such a blessing this year to be reading in the Psalms and Proverbs a whole lot more than I typically do. And in Psalm 37, I thought verse 8 is a really wonderful verse in this election cycle. Believers, those who belong to the Lord, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. You thought evil was on the other side. It tends to evil. Anger, wrath, fretting. Let's just trust the Lord together. I'm I'm really happy to talk about GCC together. Uh, It's a ministry that we're going to be doing in, in uh, three weekends, I believe it is. Um, it is in the middle of October. It's three weekends for sure. Uh, couples or, or families are going to pair together. A couple of two or three singles. Ever how we, we, we congregate. We're going to ha- assign people to be together. And on Friday night, they're going to meet together. Outside, inside, whatever you're comfortable with. Maybe especially if it's a family that you typically do that with already. Then uh, and prepare for the weekend, pray, spend time together, just enjoy fellowship. Then on Saturday, there will be one of several ministries where you'll be able to participate in doing community service <clears throat> during a difficult time. Then afterwards, you'll be visiting some of the uh, elderly in our church, and you may be outside and they may be inside. We don't know how it'll work, whatever you're comfortable with. We want to be careful, especially... Uh, you know, the, the death rates are right here until you get to 70 years old, and then they go like that. So we want to be very careful with our seniors. But we're, we're taking care of all of that. And then on Sunday, there'll be a celebration uh, in the worship service for the things that were accomplished over the weekend, the things that God accomplished over the weekend. So at last count, and that was early in the week, there were 50 people signed up. Keisha, do you know if it's any more than that? Okay, so it could be more than that by now, plenty more. Let me urge as many as uh, many of you as will and are comfortable to participate. It's a great way to minister with your kids. And, and, and trust me, we're doing everything we can to be careful. You know the, the, the word at Campbell, online only for two weeks. And as our elders discussed a few weeks ago, we've known this all along, but it was just said in a beautiful way. The Campbell community is our community. So um, we are trying to be as careful as we can. Well, to transition, I'll transition to the message with a confession. 
In fact, this is a confession that Allison and I would like to make together. We love watching British detective shows. Any, any fans here? I, I know you do. We, a lot of us love British detective shows. I, I love most things British, in fact, and just, not just because I live with someone who talks almost like the British do. That beautiful wife of mine. Uh, you may or may not know this, but Great Britain has put very severe restrictions back in place because of a re-energized virus. And the other day, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, we're doing this because a stitch in, nine saves, stitch, stitch in time saves nine. Clichés sound much classier with the British accent, and you might say, well, I haven't heard one lately. That was a pretty, pretty poor job. I'm just warning Boris Johnson's hair. That's all I, I actually, I may have it here within a few weeks. Um, here is a cliche for you that relates to today's message and next week's as well. This is, it, it's almost embarrassing to, to use it. That's why I set it up like I did. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and hoping for different results. Despite knowing better, we as believers keep going back. As believers now, we keep going back to the law to justify ourselves. That gets us into trouble, as we shall see. We'll begin with a little background. We have learned over the last two weeks, and by the way, this is where your handout will help, hopefully, the outline of Romans 5 through 8. Um, we've learned over the last two weeks from Romans 5 and 6 that all humanity stands before God condemned because we are in Adam. It is as if all of us were there with Adam and Eve disobeying God, and so consequently we're represented by him, but we are in him. And unless we are in Christ, we're going to be represented by Adam. All humans are represented by either Adam or by Jesus. The good news of Romans 6 for those who believe is that because of Jesus' one act of obedience. Now think about this in contrast. Adam has one act of disobedience and we all stand like this. You know, we're condemned. We stand guilty and ashamed before God because of our sin. But because of Jesus' one act of obedience, we have been adopted out of Adam into Jesus' family. Those who believe. What bridged the gap? Jesus' one act of obedience. We are now united with Christ, and it is as if we died and rose with Him. Now, if this is confusing to you, if it's not confusing to you, that's a little strange to me that it's not. But if it's confusing, it's okay. You will figure it out over time. You'll learn over time. Remember this, we learn in layers, and something that you hear and say, I don't have any idea what that means. Eventually, one day you'll hear it, and it's like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And you have no idea why it makes. But when this information keeps coming in, it begins to take shape, even subconsciously, and one day, all of a sudden, we get it. You don't have to understand everything now. Trust 
Jesus and you will be delighted with an ever-expanding knowledge and understanding of God throughout the rest of your natural-born life. Because we are united to Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. Romans 6 encourages us to live according to knowledge, as in, you know better now, so live as if you belong to Jesus and no longer belong to Adam. Romans 7 is going to remind us that old habits die hard. And while we are no longer in Adam, he is still in us. And he will be until the day that we die or that Jesus returns. And this creates an enormous conflict for believers. We have the power not to sin. But a sinful self remains. And it's a sinful self with which we have to contend on a daily basis. We are no longer under condemnation that is inherent in the law. See, the law promised life for those who would believe. Or promised life, excuse me, for those who would be able to keep the law. But who is that? (laughs) That's nobody. Nobody can keep the law. So condemnation was thus inherent in the law. And even though we are no longer under that condemnation, we still recognize that God's law looms large in our, in our minds nonetheless. Well, what's to be done about this conflict? Well, the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 7 and 8 in so many words, I'm glad you asked that question. Paul was constantly anticipating objections and he was giving answers before the questions were even asked. In today's text, he is answering the question that believers will inevitably ask about the truth of Romans 16. I don't know if you remember this from last week, but Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. (laughs) All kinds of things immediately come to mind. I'm afraid that sin does have sometimes control over me. What does it mean that it no longer has anything to do with me? And what does it mean to be under the law? You may be thinking, well, look, law is an Old Testament thing. Grace is a New Testament thing. But what does it mean? Does the law have any claim on our lives? And is it helpful in any way for believers? So before we get into the text, let's just think about a three, the threefold use of the law as it's given in Scripture. And this is also on your handout. <clears throat> First, the law reveals both God's righteousness and our sinfulness. It's this incredible contrast. The law shows us how holy our God is and how, how far short we fall. We know that we are responsible or how we are responsible to live before a holy creator. But the law reveals not only God's expectations for us, but it also reveals our failure because we say, I I just can't do it. Second, the law curbs or restrains wicked behavior. The law that God gave to his people through Moses holds all people accountable. It doesn't take into account whether you're rich or poor, famous or not famous at all. It holds all people 
accountable to a particular standard regardless of their position in society. And it also protects against unchecked behaviors. So here are a couple of questions. How fast did you drive coming over to church this morning? Here's the second question. How fast would you have driven if there were no speed limits? Some of you are saying, oh, some of the kids are saying, oh, I didn't realize there were speed limits because my parents, you know, get here in a hurry. So the law keeps behaviors in check. Third, here's a a third uh, use of the law. Even though believers are no longer under the law, really under the weight of the law, the condemnation of the law, Even so, God's moral law is useful for us to know how the Redeemer expects us to live. But now we're no longer living just according to the Creator's laws. We're living according to the Redeemer's desire for us. The Old Testament law and New Testament instructions, by the way, are mostly about how we treat each other. And I think I was thinking about this a lot. Because we think of obeying the law as between me and God, we tend to not worry about how we treat others, especially those who disagree with us. And we can say anything we want to about them, and it's okay. But we've missed the point of the law. I've missed the point of the law in this. Well, this has been a long introduction, but it's important groundwork for the rest, rest of the message in Romans 7, 1 through 13, which is important groundwork for next week's text, which is, it's going to go on like that until the end of Romans 8. Today's text is so tied to last week's text that we're going to begin reading <clears throat> Romans 7 in the last verse of Romans 6. Then I will read Romans 7. 1 through 6. Romans 6, 23. This is one most of us know. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're familiar with this verse. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages, what we owe to God because of the law, free gift of Jesus Christ. Or 7, 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members or the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. Not very good fruit, is it? But now 
We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So at the beginning of Romans 7, we find Paul once again pointing to the importance of knowing truth. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those of you who know the law. Paul would have been writing to believers who were either Jewish, they had trusted Christ, or they were Gentiles who had first come under the umbrella of Judaism, known as righteous Gentiles, one of the descriptions of them, uh, and now had converted to Christ. So all of these people would know the law. They would have been taken aback by what Paul had to say about the law's impact and the believer's relationship to the law. Before we think about, though, let me just say uh, a word here about marriage, divorce, remarriage. Paul uses marriage as an analogy of those who are no longer under the law but are now in Christ. This is not as most analogies in scripture and out of scripture this is not meant to intend meant to communicate a one-to-one correspondence some of you who have been divorced and 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 remarried may have felt a catch in your heart uh, or spirit when these verses were read but look when you're ever you're looking at a at a doctrine of scripture you have to look at the whole picture and in Matthew 19 Jesus said there is an exception there's an exception clause for for divorce <clears throat> If your spouse has been unfaithful, you are free to divorce and, the way I read it, to remarry. And the way most New Testament scholars read it. Also, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said that if an unbelieving spouse walks away from a believing partner, then the believer is freed from the bonds of marriage, from which I again infer, and not without some serious uh, study on this, I infer that that person is permitted to remarry as well. In fact, Paul not only allows divorce and remarriage in the case of abandonment, but in verse 15, he puts this in a category of such cases. Or some of your translations may say, in cases such of this. Now, it doesn't say what those other cases might be. But one thing we do know was what he was saying was in a case similar to this, but not exactly like this. So it could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be that the scripture allows a divorce in cases such as uh, abuse and other extreme violations of the marriage covenant. Although examples of such cases uh, are not given. So getting back to the, to the initial point though. Divorce was not Paul's point. He was saying the same thing about law and gospel that he said in Galatians. Albeit he said it a little more gently in Romans. What was his point? Just this. Jesus plus nothing equal salvation. Jesus plus anything, including the law, equals condemnation. It's Jesus alone, or it's condemnation. Remember, 
The wages of sin is death. We earned our condemnation through our connection with Adam, making us incapable of keeping the law. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And death to the law precedes commitment or comes at the same time as commitment to Christ. So, we need to stand up and do this. This is a pretty heavy text. You know what I've, I've discovered? I, I was thinking, as I told you earlier, that I, I would love to preach Romans 6, 7, and 8. Really, I'd like to do it every couple of years or so because of its importance in understanding how the Christian life works. But the more I know about Scripture, the more difficult this text becomes, if that makes any sense at all. It's like I understand it better, and wow, I guess I've been looking at sort of a simple version of it. Not a simplistic, but still a simple version of it. And this is pretty deep stuff. So there are two thoughts about these first six verses of Romans. Two comments of Paul's who would have shocked those who knew the law. First, per the analogy, we are dead to the law. Dead to the law, or the law is dead to us. It no longer has the power to condemn us. It never had the power to give life, only to condemn. It promised life to all who would keep the law, but we know that's no one. Only Jesus gives life. And when we were adopted into Jesus' family, the law's power over us ceased to exist. Such a claim would have shocked the readers. The second shock came when they were told that the law arouses sinful passions. Now think about that. The law stokes our sinful passions. The laws in their minds and in ours, if we're honest, appeals to our nobler side and inspires us to do good and to not sin. But we flatter ourselves if we think we have a noble side that is anything to, to, to our doing at all. So, to illustrate our condition, what happens when you tell your three-year-old, suppose you've got a, a toy, he's playing with toys in the living room, and you've got a toy on the coffee table. that's really not nearly as good as the other toys, but you say, now look, you can play with any toy in this room, but don't touch that toy on the table. You know what happens, right? While you are looking at them, they are sort of eyeing that. And they're getting a little bit closer to that toy too, you know? And then when you look away, you know what's going to happen when you look away. They're going to grab for that toy. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. That's what the law does. The law says, don't lust. Don't gossip. Don't do this. And somehow that drives this passion in us to sin. Guess what? We play those same games as adults. That's why verse 6 is such good news. We are no longer bound to the law, hoping that we can be good enough to be allowed to stand before God. We have been released from the consequences of failure to keep the law, and now we are free to serve Jesus. Even so, the law stands as a testament to our shortcomings. 
So what is wrong? Is it the law? Or is it something with me? Well, you know the answer, but verses 7 to 12 are going to state it better than we could. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, or meganoita. No, may it never be. God forbid that the law is something wrong with the law. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now look, we're going to talk about this next week, but I think it's a good place to stop and just throw this in. Next week, we're going to see about the two parts of us, the two sides that are going on inside of us. I, I mentioned it a while ago. That everybody recognizes this, but a lot of people have a devil on one side and, a, and, a, and an angel on the other side of our shoulders. Um, but the scripture calls it the flesh and the spirit. Or the old man and the new man. The old person the new person. Um, sin and righteousness. So when, when we say that the law provoked me. Really it was the sin in us. It was the Adam in us that saw that and said. I'm not doing that. There's no way I'm going to do that. In fact I think that's okay to do it. Doesn't the Bible say this, that, or the other? We justify our sins. So sin, verse 8 says, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. If there's no accountability, well, I was, by the way, parents, that's a good word. If there's no accountability, what's going to happen to your kids? Middle school, high school, children even. When your parents say this is the line and there's a consequence if you cross it. Let them give the consequence. They're doing you a big favor. So we understand the purpose of the law. But it doesn't make it any easier at all. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and it killed me so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good so Paul begins this section by anticipating the confusion that his readers are going to feel <clears throat> about his assertion that not only are we relieved to be free from the law, we should celebrate our freedom. In verse 7, he quickly contends that it's not the law that is the problem. I am the problem, Paul says, and my relationship to the law is a problem because I must determine what authority it has over me as a believer. And although I look to Scripture to understand that, it's a tricky thing. I said last week, sanctification or the way that God does this process of making us more and more like Jesus, conforming us to the image of God's son Jesus, which is what this mini-series is all about. It's a tricky thing. Is it a matter of, well, Jesus saved me and now it's up to me? Or is it a matter of, 
uh, there. God's going to do the work, so I just need to yield myself to him. Sort of just walk around, you know, and let the Lord move me and control me. We know that doesn't work so well. Neither one of those works so well. Or is it possibly some middle ground of obeying God's command, that is the law, by the power of the Spirit? Yes, that last answer is the correct one. But it often takes years before we understand how this works. And in the meantime, we deal with the contradiction that we are new people in Christ. And yet we deal with these sinful impulses of the flesh. And we start to think, man, I thought I was over here. But it feels like I'm over here still. What is going on inside me? We could spend a lot more time about the details in verses 7 to 12. But, but the gist is this. There is nothing wrong with the law. The problem is me. The law provokes a sinful nature in me and takes advantage of any desire to obey God by intensifying my desire to do wrong. And once I do wrong, if I'm living according to the best way I can and not living by the power of the Spirit, how's that happen? Well, we'll talk more specifically in two weeks. If it, 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 my desire is intensified to do wrong, and once I do wrong, the law condemns me. But all this has a purpose, which is described in verse 13. Which, by the way, will be the first verse of next week's text. It's kind of a transition verse. Did that which is good then... Bring death to me. By no means. It was sin. Producing death in me. Through what is good. In order that sin. Might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment. Might become sinful. Beyond measure. So what does all this mean? The, the context given in Romans 7. Helps us. Believers are no longer. Serving Sin, but we're serving God. God's law keeps us from thinking that we can be good enough to earn salvation. Or for thinking that now, that I, now I'm a Christian and I can do this myself. It's just like a child when you're helping a child to learn something new. And they're like, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And finally you just step back in disaster. Well, that's, that's what's happening to us. We're like, I can do it, I can do it. And the Lord is saying, but you, if, if you want to do it in your own strength, you've got to answer to the law. The law helps believers to see sin as the evil that it is and to see sin as sinful beyond measure. The King James, I believe, says exceedingly sinful. To see sin is exceedingly sinful. <clears throat> I used to put it like this, and I think it still works. Before I can be saved, I have to realize that I am the meanest, sorriest, rottenest, no good for anything sinner that ever walked the face of the earth. That's the way I felt when I got on my knees before the Lord at 18 years old. And if you grew up in a Christian home and you don't remember that time, don't, don't let that trouble you. Look, I'd give anything if I couldn't remember a time when I had been saved. But all of my hope is in Jesus Christ. But I had come to the place where I knew what kind of a sinner I was. But in order to serve God in a Romans 6 kind of way, 
I have to realize that I'm twice the sinner I thought I was when I got saved. And sin is far more ugly to me now that I know what it's like to be in Christ. And I feel that same contradiction that Paul feels in his heart. How can it be that a Christian, one who's been redeemed by Jesus, should live in this way? In the end, it's a very good thing to see how sinful I am, even as a Christian. Because if I respond properly, I will learn what it means to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. No doubt, this is a difficult lesson to learn. And it's a painful lesson. And it's not going to be learned this side of eternity. We're going to struggle with this all of our lives. But remember, it will help us to remember. Now that we have this brilliant understanding of God and His righteousness, this helps us to move constantly toward dependence on Him and away from dependence on ourselves. We're going to talk about that process next week. And oddly enough, a greater awareness of the sin that drives you to distraction will likely, after you've come to the end of itself, of yourself, somehow be comforting and, and encouraging. We'll get there next week, but as application to our increased awareness of the righteousness of the law and our inability to ignore it because it's still there and we're still responsible to live in these ways. I want to mention three ways that believers respond to the law and you'll spend more time in home group thinking about the responses to the law. Again, it's on this sheet and home group leaders, if you're meeting this week, it'd really be a good idea if you could just pick up some extra of these uh, for your home group this week in case there were people who were not here today. First, legalism. This is one of the ways that Christians respond to the law. Legalism or under the law. This is what Paul's talking about. We're no longer under the law. But a legalist is willing to put himself or herself right back under the law. That's the way legalistic Christians see themselves and they quickly fall into performance mode performance of course is all about appearances about looking good legalists are quick to condemn others and quick to justify themselves to achieve this just like the pharisees they tighten the law in some places and loosen the law in other places. In fact, the whole conversation about divorce for Jesus in Matthew 19 was, you Pharisees, you scribes of the law, you've taken what God allowed in this, and you've expanded the mess out of it. And, and, and if your wife puts too much salt in the food or burns the food, you think that is grounds to divorce. It's ridiculous. He's tightening up things. We think about, boy, he's really restricting it. No, uh, uh, or... or Making, um, oh, I got lost on myself there. So he, we, he was restricting it. We recognize he's restricting it. But the Pharisees, legalists, are not as tight as you think they are. They expand the law in a lot of places. So Jesus brings it back into focus. But then there are other areas where they do tighten up the laws. Like the laws of the Sabbath. They had 37 and each one of these 37 or 39 sub 
sets to the law had subsets. I mean, you just kept on going. A, little one in parentheses, little a. You know, I mean, just on and on and on. So that we'll make sure we don't break the Sabbath. Jesus didn't break any Sabbath laws. He broke their rules that they had added to the law. That's what legalists do. But wait a minute. Aren't we all tempted to legalism? We are. It is, in fact, our default position, our default attitude in life. Even if we are not religious, we may talk about our narrative and don't dare allow any truth that conflicts with our narrative or our version of the law. Christ died to free us from the condemnation of the law and the effects of legalism. Being confronted with our sin helps to cure us of legalism. So Romans 7 is not a bad thing because legalism is destructive both to us and to others. A second response to the law is on the opposite end of the scale. Antinomianism, which means against law or against the law. It used to be fashionable in evangelical circles to declare a person saved if they profess faith in Jesus no matter how they lived. You know, evangelicals would criticize Catholics and say, man, you think just because you were baptized as an infant, you were saved? Well, the same thing could be said to us. Man, you think just because you prayed a prayer at eight years old, you think that you're saved? It was fashionable. But it was not biblical. The absurdity of going forward in a service or using a prayer that you prayed as fire insurance and then living any way that you want to is the very thing Paul's exposing in this section of Romans. If you're struggling with the sin that you desperately want to overcome, like we're going to be talking about next week, I'm not nearly as concerned about you if you're not struggling with sin in your life. If you think, I'm fine, I'm living it like I ought to be lived. That's when I start to worry about you. Antinomianism, the idea that I don't have any sin anymore, or that I can justify whatever sin that I want to, it's kind of like legalism. You know, it's not like they're here. I said they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, but really they're right here back to back, looking out, and you think you're a long way from the other side, but you're right next to it. Antinomianism is wicked. There's an alternative to these two responses, though. Spirit-filled obedience. The New Testament makes it clear that we are no longer bound to Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws. It is equally clear that God expects us to follow The moral law. Sometimes the New Testament points to the law of Christ. Or talks about the law of Christ. Which is more stringent than the Mosaic law. Not only can you not kill someone. You can't hate someone. The law of Christ is is much more exacting. But because of the spirit. It's our heart. We desire to live in this ways, these ways. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we now have the means to obey. 
We obey God's moral law, but we do so through our union with Christ and by the life and power of the Holy Spirit that lives, who lives and works in us. And I want to close this morning by reading a quote from John Stott's wonderful commentary on Romans as he wrote about Romans 7, 6. Quote, Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. And how do we serve? We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. For the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the distinguishing characteristic of the new age and so of the new life in Christ. That's a wonderful word, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are a mess. And so it's appropriate that we look at this text and we think, wow, this is, this is really difficult. In fact, it feels like a mess. But Lord, the truth that you are building in our hearts over these weeks in Romans 5 and 6, now in 7 and 8 next couple of weeks, uh, this truth encourages our heart greatly. It clears the confusion if we hang with it. And I pray that you would give us the heart to do so, Lord. That we would understand how to submit ourselves to you and yield to the Holy Spirit who brings the life of Christ to fruition in our lives and for the whole world to see. In the meantime, we confess that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We recognize as we continue to think about the power that the sin in us has over us, especially as we compare ourselves to the law. As we think about that, help us to see the beauty of your plan that is counterintuitive that this sin that we struggle with allows us to depend more deeply and fully and, and, and wholly on you that the beauty of Christ might be seen in us. May it be so. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.